0: Before I begin speaking this morning, let me convey greetings to you from one of our friends named George LePere. I spoke with George again this week and quite candidly, I'm not sure how many times I'm going to be able to convey greetings to you from him. Um, To his chagrin, he continues to wake up every day and um, he has stopped taking certain medications and He has outlived his hospice contract of six months, uh, in his mind at least, so I told him he's going to have to renew, and uh, he continues to pray for us, and he holds us dear in his heart as we do him, and so I want to encourage you this morning just to remember George, to say a prayer for him as he's uh, most definitely, it seems, in The final days of his journey here on earth and so much looking forward to heaven, uh, to seeing his savior and to being reunited with his loved ones. Well, I think you probably already know this, but it's not always easy to do what God says to do. If you've ever found yourself in a position of having to deliver hard news, then you know how unsettling that can be. If you've ever been that single voice in a crowd, standing against something that it seems almost everybody else was for, then you know how lonely that can be. If you've ever spoken truth only to be criticized or mocked or condemned, then you know how painful and even scary that can be. In our scripture this morning, the prophet Isaiah ticks all these boxes and as we pick up the text, we find that even prophets need reassurance from time to time. Our passage begins with Isaiah's testimony that the Lord Himself is the one who is going to deliver this reassurance. For the Lord spoke thus to me with His strong hand upon me, and warned me not to walk in the way of this people. God takes hold of His servant, Isaiah. His first encouragement is delivered emphatically with a strong hand. The message paraphrase of this verse says, God grabbed me with both hands. This act on the part of God signifies the importance, the weight, the urgency even, of what he wants to communicate. Maybe as a parent you've had occasion to lend a hand to your communication. Maybe you had to cup a little face just to make sure that you were being heard or apply a little pressure to a shoulder to guide someone along who was in obvious need of some guidance. God's strong hand is upon Isaiah and his message begins with a warning not to walk in the way of this people, not to join in the rebellious, sinful, corrupt, vain practices of his countrymen. In short, God tells Isaiah not to do what everybody else is doing, which might have been a temptation for him, but certainly would have made him more popular, would in some ways make his life easier, might even make him feel better about himself, if only for a little while. C.S. Lewis once said, when the whole world is running towards a cliff, He who's running in the opposite direction appears to have lost his mind. Who wants to appear as if they've lost their mind? Who wants to stand out in the crowd this way? Sometimes when the sin that surrounds us is great, when it feels like we're a lone dissenting voice, when it seems as though everyone else is in lockstep and we are out of step, to give in, to turn, and to go with the flow can be very enticing. If you are a student and you are listening to these words, you know this better than anyone. How hard it is to maintain faith in an environment when doing so might ensure that you are not accepted, that you do not fit in, and how relentless are the invitations and how frequent the opportunities for you to do what you know you ought not to do and these temptations and and pressures they do not present themselves in person always I was thinking about this and thinking boy in the old days our parents just had to keep a handle on where we were at that's not the case anymore because now the temptations and the pressures come to us through a whole web of connections they come through social media. They come right to you through your phone. Young Christian, do whatever you have to do to keep these temptations and pressures at bay and not to give in to them, not to compromise your faith, not to sell yourself to be accepted. Be strong in the faith and do not walk in the ways of those who are going in the wrong direction. Isaiah was, and you and I are called to a much higher standard than everybody's doing it. The word of the Lord in Exodus 23, 2 says, You shall not fall in with the many to do evil. The book of James teaches us that friendship with the world is enmity with God. That word enmity means hostility or hatred towards God. And truly we understand that one cannot hold residency in the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light simultaneously. To follow God is to forsake the way of the world. To follow the way of the world is to forsake God. And here in Isaiah 8, the people have forsaken God. And they have turned instead to a host of ungodly practices. And the Lord warns His servant, with his strong hand on the prophet's shoulders. Don't be like them. Don't follow their ways. The child of God must not behave as those who do not know God. Next, the Lord tells Isaiah, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And that seems like an odd transition. What is this doing here in the Scripture? To understand it, it helps to know the context. At this time, Judah is under threat of invasion. Panic is spreading through the masses. As one commentator put it, their heart was moved as the trees of the wood are moved by the wind. The people are scrambling to come up with a, a national strategy, a way to understand what's happening to them, and a way to fix it, including an alliance with a pagan king. Throughout this time, Isaiah has tried to convince them to trust in the Lord. He has tried to inspire faith in them. He has tried to tell them, listen, it doesn't matter who's against us if God is for us. But the people don't trust Him. They would rather try to engineer their survival on their own through compromise. They simply do not believe God. And those who don't really believe God are naturally left with with only their own best efforts and strategies formulated from faithless hearts and futile thinking. So God warns Isaiah that the Lord's servant must not adopt the suspicions of unbelievers who draw their conclusions and chart their courses without consulting, without caring for the Almighty. Isaiah is not to follow the masses in their unreasonable alarm. He is not to get caught up in conspiracy theories and speculation, not to swallow the popular narrative of how things are understood as if it were true or right just because a lot of people are saying the same thing. And most certainly he is told not to be caught up, not to be swept up in the politics of fear. Do not call conspiracy what these people call conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Fear comes when something we value supremely is threatened. That's why the child of God must not fear what unbelievers fear. Because what we value supremely is God himself. And God cannot be threatened. We cannot lose him, and he will never let us go. So we are eternally secure. So, for instance, when it comes to the prevalent fear in our day, the fear of getting sick and dying, the faithful ought to be able to say confidently, we are not afraid. It doesn't mean that we are ignorant. It doesn't mean that we are defiant. It doesn't mean that we have our heads stuck in the sand. It does not uh, mean that we believe that we are immune to getting sick and dying. We just know that there are greater things to fear than what can happen to our bodies. Jesus tells us, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more they can do. But I warn you, whom to fear. Fear Him who, after He has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear Him. That's Jesus telling us, don't fear circumstances, don't fear man, fear God. And if you hear those words and they reinforce for you a sense uh, that you already have of an angry God who's just looking for a reason to cast people into hell, let me finish the passage. These are the words of Jesus. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten by God. Why? Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God, but the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. You are valuable to God. God has His eye on you. God cares for you. And you can live a fearless life. You can live a confident life. You can know and be sure of your eternal destiny. That's a truth that we're going to see again here in just a few minutes. But for now, God tells Isaiah not to lend credence to the popular narrative or to be caught up in the politics of fear. This counsel from God, by the way, reminds us that as children of God, when times are tough, when faith is challenged, we do better to look up than to look around. Look up, not around. We must keep our eyes on the Lord. We must take our cues from heaven. And that is exactly what God tells Isaiah to do. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. How does one honor the Lord as holy? You might recall from your Old Testament reading a character named Moses, a great man of God and the leader of Israel through the Exodus. But he wasn't allowed to finish that journey. He wasn't allowed to go into the promised land. And that's because there was an incident where Moses allowed his emotions to get the better of him. God had instructed him to speak to a rock. And that rock would then pour forth water for the thirsty people. The people who were quarreling and upset and unhappy and probably had gotten on Moses' last nerve. But Moses takes the rod of God, and instead of speaking to the rock, he strikes it twice. You might also recall, if you remember Moses, he had a temper that was displayed from time to time. And you and I would justify that and probably say, listen, he had every right to do that and those people were driving him nuts. Any normal person would do that Under those so we could go on and on and say he's having a bad day, give him a break, okay. But listen, how does God understand this? You can read about it in Numbers chapter 20. He, call, he calls it disobedience, of course, but he considers it a serious affront and he says, because you did not believe in me and uphold me as holy in the eyes of these people. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Did you catch that? Because you didn't believe in me. Because you took matters into your own hands. Because you thought you had a better way. You didn't uphold me as holy. To uphold God as holy is simply to trust in him. It is to believe in him. believe in Him in all circumstances, perhaps even the toughest ones. To honor the Lord as holy is to give Him primary consideration in, in our lives, to give Him primary allegiance, to do as He says, to care much more about His will than we do our own, to trust His sense of direction more than our own. To honor the Lord as holy means not taking matters into your own hands, which is exactly what the people of Judah were doing. It means not being ruled by emotion, which is exactly what the people of Judah were doing. Instead, verse 13, let God, let him be your fear. And let him be your dread. Now remember, Isaiah is under a lot of pressure here. The dangers to himself were real, physical, literal danger. On the surface, he had lots of reasons to be afraid. And yet the Lord doesn't want him to fear any of these things. Not people, not outcomes, just him. He isn't to dread uh, the mob. He isn't to be worried about an invading army. How could he not be fearful of these things? By getting his fears in order. And in this exchange, God is graciously helping him do that. A lot of us suffer from recurring bouts of fear disorder. And it's easy for our fears to get out of order, isn't it? Don't you think? To let the concern of what others will say or do shape us or our actions and our reactions, to let our anxiety over what-if scenarios fill our minds to the to the point where they cause us to grab back the wheel of our life and try to steer it in the direction we think it ought to go. It's very easy to get caught up in self-preservation, convinced that if we don't take care of ourselves, if we don't protect ourselves, then no one else will. In my experience, when fear has this sort of hold, it's often because the object of our fear has become larger than God. And what's needed in those moments is not an artificial diminishing or downplaying of the seriousness or or the danger that we are in. These things may in fact be dire or grim, but what's needed is a greater vision of God. What do you mean by that, pastor? Our God is greater. Our God is stronger. Lord, you are higher than any other. Our God is healer, awesome in power. Our God, our God. How great is your vision of God? How does He stack up against the worries that are keeping you up at night? Do you believe that He's really omnipotent? Is He really all-powerful? Is He really omniscient? Is he really all-knowing? Is he really omnificent? Is he completely unlimited in creative power? Is he really omnipresent? Is he with you always? Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. In other words, paraphrase commentator Albert Barnes a little bit, don't be alarmed at what man can do but be more concerned with provoking God's wrath by abandoning your faith and taking matters into your own hands by looking to ungodly and comparably puny sources of help when he is and has all that you need. Fear God. That is enough. Fear God, Isaiah is told, and so he tells us, and he will become a sanctuary. Verse 14. To the nation, to the people, for the person that sets God apart as holy, that believes he can and does govern all things according to his perfect will, that what he determines will indeed come to pass, no matter what appearances would say. To that person, to that nation, to those people, the Lord is a sanctuary, he is a protector but to the nation, to the people, for the person that does not uphold God as holy, does not believe that He governs all things, foolishly believes that they determine the future, that lives and plots and parries in response to how things appear to be. To these ones He will be, Isaiah says, a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling, a trap and a snare. and Many will stumble on it and they will fall and be broken. They'll be snared. And taken. Well, those ones who don't believe, they should be afraid. And they should live in dread. But not in dread of their circumstances, like so many people do. In dread of what's going to happen after. In dread of God's judgment on their unbelief. In dread of spending eternity in hell. You see, when it comes to anyone's relationship with God, there really are just two options. We either accept him or we reject him. We either obey him or we disobey him. For those who obey the Lord, the idea of Emmanuel, God with us is a comfort. God protects. But for those who don't, God's presence is a terror. God is wrath. God destroys. And with that, Isaiah's prophecy here comes to an end. The scroll is rolled up and it is sealed. And the prophet declares, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. It appears that God's reassurance has paid off. That Isaiah's fears are in right order again. He does not deny in any way that it's a dark time in the history of his people. God is hiding his face. Maybe you're going through a dark time right now. You feel like God is hiding his face. He's still God, you know. He's just not showing up in the moment. Well, what is one to do until he does? Isaiah tells us, you wait. I don't like to wait. You like to wait. Most people I know don't like to wait. In today's world, we're not accustomed to waiting for much. And in truth, we usually don't have to wait long for anything. I'm a little irritated with Amazon. They're not as fast as they used to be, but they're still pretty quick in truth. And when it comes to having some of our most difficult questions answered, I don't have to wait. I can Google it. We should probably let the Bible, not our own impatience, determine our view toward waiting, though, don't you think? In the book of Lamentations, the prophet Jeremiah writes this, The Lord is my portion, therefore I will hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Lamentations 3.26. In an article for Desiring God, Marshall Siegel writes, God does hide his face. He's not the butler your favorite internet browser pretends to be. God knows that sometimes the best thing for doubting, questioning, and wandering hearts is waiting. Sometimes the uncomfortable distance between our questions and God's answer really can be a gift greater, sweeter, and more needed than the answer itself. Waiting is not a waste of time. It sometimes feels that way. At least it's not a waste of time if we do it as Isaiah did which is in hope hope as I've said previously in biblical terms is not wishful thinking it's confident expectation we wait in hope in confident expectation that God is going to fulfill his promises we wait in hope for the second coming of Jesus just the same way as people ages ago waited for his first we wait in hope for God to show his face and shine some light into our dark valleys. And we are confident because our hope is, as Isaiah put it, in Him. Our hope is in God, in His character, not in a desired outcome. Waiting in hope can be hard, but it's good. And it's good for us. When we wait in hope, we regard the Lord as holy. We prove that we trust Him Waiting in hope is refining our faith, proving that we have some, and that it is anchored in the steadfast assurance that God is good, and God will show up at the time and in the way that is right and best. Waiting in hope is remaining faithful when God says, not yet. With encouragement from the Lord to look up and not around, to take his cues from heaven, and to fear God above all else. Isaiah can wait and hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you as we bring this time to a close, that you have come to us and that you have laid your hands on our shoulders and you have spoken truth. With a strong hand, you have reminded us through your word of how we as your servants are to behave and think and feel and respond in this world with devils filled, this world that threatens to undo us. How easy it would be for us to fall Fall in with the many who do evil, Lord. Spare us from that. And how prone we are to get caught up in these narratives. The spin on our problems, the dogmatic insistencies on their solutions deliver us from the world's wisdom, God, as we seek yours. How susceptible we are, Father, knowing our weaknesses and frailties to the power of fear. But we ask that you might make us bold. Help us, as you helped your prophet, to see that our fears must be in order. And that if we begin with fearing you, everything else will take its place where it belongs. We pray in these moments, Father, for those who find themselves in the bondage of fear. We pray for you to be the light in their darkness. We pray for those experiencing hardships and who struggle to know your hope. We pray they may find peace in their souls through their relationship with you we pray for those who rightly live in dread because they are apart from you that you might draw them to yourself that you might save them that they might know your love your forgiveness and joy Lord the assurance of knowing you and we praise you for the hope that lies within us as we wait for our faith to become sight Lord Bind us together. Do not let the things that keep us apart physically stop us from growing together spiritually. Protect us in these times from the enemy who seeks to disrupt and destroy. Be glorified in our trials and how we handle them for your name's sake. We are waiting in hope for you. Amen.